0: Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy and our discussion of Sir Thomas Mallory's Le d'Arthur. This is session number two, uh, which I am calling A Christmas Miracle. Uh, as, of course, we must remember that the whole sword and the stone business is very significantly in the text not just a miracle, but a Christmas miracle. Uh, but we'll come to that. Um, Okay. All right. Uh, so, uh, boy, people are super quiet on the, uh, net mode here. Okay. All right. Um, I just got my, got my first comment here. Normally I get more than that. Um, okay. So, uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. Um, so, okay. Uh, I promised that I would give an update because, uh, there's, um, uh, a pretty cool update coming. Oh, cool, Tarek. Uh, good to see you, Tara Wynn, uh, there in the Twitch chat. Um, glad to see you making it live. So yesterday was a big day, right? We had our official site visit for the state of New Hampshire, um, and uh, that was huge. So this is a, this is the sort of the core part of our comprehensive evaluation, uh, Signum Universities, uh, for our state certification process. Uh, and we pretty much aced it. I think uh, we did a great job. Uh, our people were awesome. Um, and uh, it was really, really cool. So I have a, I have a, I have a great feeling about things. I had a really good talk with him afterwards, getting a, get, getting a, a very good uh, uh, feeling about, um, about uh, uh, the, the, the review. Nothing is official yet. Nothing will be official until uh, this has to come up for a vote uh, by the higher education committee. Um, so what that what happens the result of the site visit technically is a report that the evaluation team makes which they submit to the Department of Education which is then passed along to the Higher Education Commission which has to vote to approve or uh disapprove of the recommendation of the evaluation committee so there's still a process um but um as i say i'm um uh i'm i'm getting used to it i'm, I'm getting i'm getting used to the idea uh that this is uh this is going to go really well. So I'm uh, excited, super excited uh, about this. We're getting ready to both respond to suggestions that were made to us in the site visit and also thinking towards the next stages. And uh, But it is a super, super exciting time at Signum University. So, um, you know, many thanks, of course, to so many of you who played such a huge part in that, not only... Uh, through uh, donations, of course, so many of you uh, gave to support this effort and made it possible. We're paying these large fees out to the state to cover this whole process. And uh, um, we actually talked about that at the site visit, um, about uh, how they were kind of impressed. In fact, they were, I think that, our fundraising was so successful that they like didn't totally get it. Like when they talked about fundraising, they were like, you know, well, it's hard, like, you know, it's hard to, to rely on fundraising. Cause if you, you know, fundraising is really a core part of, you know, your like financial core, then you've got to do that. Like every year, you know, you, you can't just rely on people to, to support you every year. And I'm like, actually, you know, we kind of can, like we have for many years. And uh, anyway, so it's funny. I'm like, you don't, you don't, you don't know our people, do you? Uh, Anyway, it it was, it it was really cool. Um, So anyway, so obviously many thanks for that. Uh, And we're, we're a significant percentage. We're still, uh, we, we will, I'll come with a more of an update later on. Um, uh, We will still need a little bit more money for, to complete the accreditation review process which is the stage we're now beginning to orient ourselves towards. But anyway, in addition to all of the support you guys have been in fundraising, I just wanted to thank you guys for being such a big part of uh, what we're doing here at Mythgard Insignum and have been doing for years. Uh, you guys are awesome. And even if, you know, you are just listening along, watching on YouTube, but, uh, you know, uh, it's um, it's it's, you know... A huge part of what we do and I and I, I just want you to know how much I appreciate uh, you guys who uh, come along uh, have been coming along with us and been such a big part of this whole process so yeah Jeffrey, I agree Jeffrey says never underestimate the power of unified nerds we get things done that 's right i I think I think that uh, the, the the power of unified nerds is something that uh, the uh, uh, the well, I don't want to say bureaucrats in a pejorative sense, but it's kind of technically true that that's their job. Um, I, I, th- I think it's something that they underestimate. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's good, yeah. It's funny, Tony says we're totally not a cult, which is exactly word for word what Druid's Fire just said. So you said that almost in unison, which is like totally not creepy. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, that's good. Um <laughs> yes, we are all individuals um uh no, but seriously, I, joking aside seriously i 'm try- trying to be serious here and thanking you guys um, but uh yeah, cool so <laughs> let 's get to talking about Maori um, so, Christmas miracle, as I said, but first, we need to return back to. The end of uh, last time, we, we didn't quite, we almost got to the beginning of Arthur last time, but not quite. But I'm very confident we're going to get to the Christmas miracle this time. Um, yeah, anyway, okay, uh, okay. Hey, oh, Jennifer, you're back for the live classes. Great, excellent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Stephen, yes. Uh I, I, I have to admit, I was kind of excited in today's reading to get to Sir Grifflet, who is of course the inspiration that is uh, the, the 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 character after whom uh my Lotro Stream character, Grifflet the Burglar, has been named. Uh so um it's it's uh yeah, yeah, uh, that's fun. Griffith was always one of my favorite of King Arthur's knights. Uh, I, 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 I'm not entirely sure even why I always liked Griffith as much as I did, but uh, he was always one of my favorites. So, okay, all right, let's move on. So this is remember Merlin still giving his advice to Uther, right? As Uther is lounging in his bed, sick for pure anger and for love. Of a grind, uh, and uh, Merlin is giving him his advice. So here is Merlin's advice. And remember, this comes right after Merlin just made that peculiar, almost fairy tale demand, right? Um, I will help you achieve your desire if in exchange you give me your firstborn child. Um, except he then ruined it, right? By explaining how doing so would be for his worship, for Uther's worship, and for the child's worship. Uh, so that kind of, uh, uh lowered the stakes a little bit of the whole fairy bargain thing that was going on. Um, but, um, anyway, okay, um, Now, mark you, ready," said Merlin. "This night ye shall lie with the with Igraine in the castle of Tintagel, and ye shall be like the duke, her husband. Ulfius shall be like Sir Brastius, a knight a, a, a of the dukes, and I will be like a knight that hiecht Sir Jordanus, a knight of the dukes. But wait, but wait, ye, make not many questions with her nor her men, but say ye are diseased, and so hie you to bed." And rise not on the morn, till I come to you. For the castle of Tintagel is but ten mile hence. So this was done as they devised it. But the king of Tintal- but the duke, sorry, but the duke of Tintagel, aspired who the king rode for the siege of Terebil. "'And therefore that nicht he issued out of the castle at a postern, "'for to have distressed the king his host. "'And so through his own issue the duke himself was slain, "'or ever the king come at the castle of Tintagel. "'So after the death of the duke king Uther lie with a grine "'more than three ores after his death, "'and begat on her that nicht Arthur. "'And or die come, Merlin come to the king, "'and bade him make him ready.' And so he kissed the laddie a grine, and departed in all haste. But Juan the Ladi heard tell of the Duke her husband, and by all record he was dead. Should that be deed? He was deed, or ever King Uther come to her. Then she marviled, ho oh, that meeked bay be, that lie with her, in lake in likeness of her lord. So she mourned privily and held her peace. Okay. All right. So first we have Merlin's suggestion. Now notice one thing that is distinctly missing here, and that is any indication of any mechanism by which Merlin is going to accomplish what he, he tells them what's going to happen. Right. Uh, and notice he's just speaking indicative statements in the future tense. Right. Right. Uh, this is Merlin's favorite mode, by the way. Merlin's favorite mode is speaking in the indicative mood in the future tense, right? Uh, this night, you shall lie with a grain in the castle of Tintagel. That is what's going to happen. And ye shall be like the duke, her husband. So you, you will appear to be like her husband. Fact. And then he, he then he starts giving orders. Right. But it's not about how to accomplish this. You know, there's no like in order to bring this to pass, you must do X, Y or whatever. Or first wait while I I don't know what I carve a sigil, say a prayer you know, rub an ointment. You know, there's no indication. Brew a potion. There's no at all indication of how this is going to happen. But he gives commands of what you should do. Don't uh, don't stop to chat, right? Go straight to bed. Say that you're diseased. Um, Diseased, by the way, more generic word, then in the modern, uh, disease in the modern word, of course, in the, just, it means to have a, a sickness, an illness of some type, usually a fairly grave type. Um, you know, we don't call it, like, if you just have a passing cold, we don't say that you're diseased. Um, but of course, disease literally means like not to be at your ease. So, um... You know, if you are diseased, that just means like you want to go to bed, right? Or I mean, it can mean a whole. It's a very generic word. It can mean a whole bunch of things. Um, but it doesn't mean like, "Hi, I've caught the plague. I need to go to bed." That's not what it means when he says uh, when he says, "Say that you are diseased." Um, so yeah, just like say you want to go straight to bed. Totally true, right? Uh, and hi, you to bed. I love that phrase, Hi, you to bed, and rise not till uh, on the morn till I come to you. The only thing which is even constructed as if it were some kind of explanation is that last phrase. For the costal of is but ten mile hence. And the only reason that is to explain why you don't have to rise until the morning, right? Wait until dawn. It's fine. It's only ten miles away, right? Okay, fine. Um... uh yeah <laughs> chicks dig the disease says Arthur yeah I don't think it's a pickup line exactly Arthur um, uh, yeah yeah no uh, Mike when he says to you'll be like her husband it means it doesn't mean like you shall act in the role of her husband which is certainly true um uh, in the sense that he's taking he's, he's going to her bed right um but no this this is there's clearly magic happening here. Like they, they are going to be disguised, magically disguised, so that they shall be mistaken for the Duke, Brastius, and Jordanus. Right. Um, you know, that's that's absolutely what's um what's gonna happen. Um Yeah, <laughs> yeah Arthur says saying you're diseased. Yeah, that is the best pickup line. Absolutely. Um Tony says he finds it interesting that the spelling of Tintagel uh over the course of one passage the, the way it changes over the course of one passage it's almost as if the medievals weren't fussed about standardized spellings absolutely not um i strong flexibility is one of the key things to reading middle english right standardized spelling is a business of the printers right um only after the printing press not only exists but becomes com becomes widespread does even the issue of standardized spelling become a thing it's not that there are no rules at all in middle english or in old english there are and you will generally see words spelled more or less the same way um and um you know and there are there are some rules you know like you, about you know the cases of nouns and 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 conjugation of verbs and things like that so it's not like you can just do anything like you please uh if you want to be understood But we're not bothered, and especially with names. Names seem to be uh, particularly true of this, so I agree. In this one passage alone, both Tintagil and Terabil are spelled multiple different ways, right? It's all good. It's all good. Um, Yeah, so um, Wes says that while heading out, he still looks like Uther— I yes yes oh, right right because of the Duke of Tintagel spying him yes yes exactly so um uh, exactly and well and let's get to that that part right so notice what happens with the Duke here so the Duke sees him right away so with yes apparently he looks like Uthi, this, the Duke of T- of Tintagel called the Duke of Tintagel who's in Terrible right though he's called the Duke of Cornwall elsewhere so I guess. Tintagel is his capital in um Cornwall. I I don't know. I mean, like I'm taking that by the fact that he's identified with Tintagel in that way. But anyway, the duke, right, our unnamed duke um is looking out and he doesn't see himself riding away from the camp, right? Uh wh- or presumably he would have um uh, he would have uh, accounted for that, right? Uh, or like, something, there would have been some comment, presumably, upon that. Um, uh, yeah, so, okay, anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Zach, I agree, spelling changes of words were particularly noticeable in today's reading, I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, and James, yeah, standardized titles are not a thing either. Uh, you can refer to someone in different way, except, James, there are a few people whose... Titles never change. Like in my opinion, most comically, the King with a Hundred Knights, who will be called the King with a Hundred Knights for a very long time. Um uh even though I always I always kind of imagined it, you know, like having to update his title all the time. <laughs> like, oh oops, he's down to the king with seventy six knights. He's gotta recruit some more, right? Uh oh, he's having a good week. He's now the king of hundred and twelve knights. Um, but uh anyway, yeah, yeah, he's uh He's yeah Nancy, he is a young man and a good knight, and therefore, for both of those reasons, being young and being a good knight uh he's gonna be he's gonna be in hundreds and hundreds of pages of this book he's gonna be around for a long time um yeah, yeah, um yeah, okay, um. Yeah Joe says uh, Joe Negar says he thought that uh, Merlion was a new character. I, I, yeah, yeah, that that's a tricky one. Um that's a tricky one. Um Okay, cool. So uh let's um <laughs> let's keep going. No Mike her holding the queen holding her peas has nothing to do with the privy at all. At Oh just clarifying that <laughs> anyway, okay, so um <laughs> the Duke sees Uther riding away, as Wes points out, presumably in the form of himself. Um, so, <laughs> so, oh dear um I, I I know you know Mike i I, I have to admit. There are some things that you miss. Like, uh, I, I I literally wouldn't have thought of that when I saw that. It never would have occurred to me. Uh, whew. Anyway. Okay. Um, uh, uh. Right. What was I talking about? The Duke! The Duke sees Uther right away. Now, note what he does, right? And there are a couple things, couple interesting conclusions that I think that we can draw from the Duke's actions, right? Number one he is trying to take advantage of an opportunity right seeing uther ride away he doesn't know why uther is riding away or where he's going tintaggio might be ten miles away but that's presumably out of sight of where the duke is, right? So it's not like he can tell that the duke is riding off alone towards Tintagel. Besides which, who cares if he is? As I said, Tintagel is virtually impregnable. Um, if the uh, if Uther and two and and two of his knights ride off together uh, towards Tintagel, if Uther and two thousand of his knights ride off towards Tintagel, they're not going to be able to do anything. So that's why he put his wife there, right? So the duke is not riding out in order to pursue Uther because he's afraid of what Uther might do, he sees this as a military advantage, right? That uh, uh, since the leader of the opposing army has gone away, this is an opportunity for him to go out and wreak some havoc, right? And I think thinking in the context of what we saw before about sort of the warnings given and things like that on both sides, um, how Uther gave him warning to stuff and garnish himself, right? So that he, you know, get yourself ready for a siege because I'm coming after you myself. Um, the kind of fair play, which is obviously very important to this kind of warfare. I I wonder to what extent, uh, if this is any kind of, Sketchy action. If we're supposed to look askance at what the Duke of Tintagel does here, on the one hand, I mean, it seems like a, a kind of an obvious sort of thing to do. If he's if he's imagining that the host will be, if he comes out um, for a night assault, mind. Notice this. He's doing as as doing a sneak attack by night, a secret, uh, a a nocturnal sortie from his castle out against the enemy camp while he knows their commander is away. Right, and so you can see how he would believe. Um, that, uh, uh, that this is, um, uh, you know, this is to his advantage, right? That, that he's going to, he's going to get a, uh, uh, you know, he's going to be able to win, right? If if he comes out here, I, um, um, so Again, it's hard because on the one hand, you want to look at it and say like, well, yeah, like good move. Right. Perfectly sound strategy. All's fair in love and war, except everything isn't fair in war anyway. Maybe everything's fair in love. It seems Uh, what Uther does to Igraine doesn't seem very fair. Um, uh, And in fact, you'll notice there's a kind of parallel there. Right. So the Duke is going to sneak out by night and take. Uther's army by surprise while they're not resisting right Uther well if he didn't come on strong to a grain when she was at the at you know his place um, he at least made it very obvious that that's what he wanted right uh, such that she um, uh, she feels that she's under she's in danger right uh, and so that like she's gonna have to reject him to his face and that's going to get ugly right so they flee um and he's going to do a sneak assault by night right and come to her in and and again sneakily right in the form of her husband so that he will she will let him in the gate so he's going in fact to infiltrate the impregnable castle because he's going to get let in the front door cuz he looks like the duke right um it's the only way he could get into Tintagel um so the parallel there is kind of interesting, and I can't think that either one of them, Uther or the Duke, come off looking too good after this, right? Um, th- the Duke pays for it, right? The result of his nocturnal assault, um, you know, his, uh, his sneaky nocturnal sortie is that he's killed, Um, He was himself slain or ever the king come at the castle of Tintagel. That's quickly, right? It's only 10 miles away, remember. Uh, So before Uther could even cross the 10 miles to get to Tintagel, the duke was already dead. Um, So he dies. We don't know exactly how. Um, But uh, (laughs) Arthur, I (laughs) I really think, I think that... Middle English is going to give you way too much material, Arthur. For those who don't know, Arthur Harrow is a regular of ours. He's a, a wonderful participant, uh and cannot help himself making puns uh in the questions box. And boy, does Middle English give him scope. Um anyway, yeah, yeah. Um uh so Yeah. Now, Matthew, I agree that night attacks are big risks, um, as, as, as we see. Right. Um, but, um, uh, and it, I mean, it clearly, it does it does backfire on them. Though again, we're not told exactly how. Um, but Wes, you're absolutely right that the notice what the text insists upon, and, and and you're very right to pick this up. This is exactly what I was talking about last time when I talked about trying to pay attention to what the text itself foregrounds. Like, what is the narrator drawing our attention to? And the primary thing um, that the uh, the primary thing that the narrator emphasizes is the timing of the death, right? The duke himself was slain, or ever the king come at the castle of Tinda. Before he arrived, the duke was already dead, right? So Arthur was not begotten by Uther on another man's wife. She was already a widow when he slept with her and begot Arthur. And they got married soon thereafter, well before, um, well before she... she uh, had him, right? Uh, You know, marrying the lady who is already bearing your child is legit, right? Like that you, you're making an honest woman of her, right? And the child is not a bastard. So if you, if you get a girl pregnant and then you marry her before the baby is born, the child is not a bastard. Um, so there's, there are, there are definite legal ramifications, but had the, had it worked the other way around, right? Had, uh, he gotten the child on a grain while the Duke was still alive and then afterwards the Duke dies, then the child is a bastard, right? Because he was born out, he was born, um, in adultery or he was conceived in adultery rather. Um, so that's, that's, uh, marrying her after the husband is dead is not, is that's not enough. That's not Okay. Um, Carita, it's right. She was a widow for like at least 10 minutes minimum. Uh, but that's, it's fine. That's fine. It's all good. Um, uh, total, uh, 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 you know, um, not a problem, not a problem. Um, Marilyn says Merlin knew the Duke would die. Are we to think he had anything to do with the death? Marilyn, that is a really interesting question, and this is something we're going to be looking at with Merlin a lot, right? Um, I would expand your question a little bit to say, looking at Merlin's actions, Merlin is going to, as I said, he's going to speak in the indicative mood, future tense a lot. He's just going to tell us about what's going to happen. The question, Marilyn, is what, as you as you're asking in this case, and as will be the question in many, many cases... What is the causal relationship between Merlin's actions and or Merlin's predictions and the things that are going to come, right? He knows about all these things. Did he cause them? Or did he just know about them, right? Here, on the one hand, I am tempted to say, what could Merlin have done, right? He didn't cause the Duke to attack, He didn't cause the Duke to die, right? He didn't kill the Duke. He's riding off with Uther at the time, right? Merlin's not even there. But given that we don't know anything about the mechanism of how Merlin operates, how are we to know, right? I mean, maybe he had um, put some curse upon the Duke, which led first to his reckless decision and then to his death afterwards. We have no idea. Um. And Tomas Tomas says, we need to define what Merlin really is, to which my response is, good luck with that. (laughs) Merlin is an extremely elusive character uh, in this book. Um, And my only disappointment is he's not going to be around all that long. Um, There's a reason that this early section is called Merlin. Uh, Merlin is going to be real busy for a little while, um, but he's not going to be around during the whole book. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> Wes says it seems like a two birds with one stone kind of thing here. Possibly that is as far as what Merlin is doing. Right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna orchestrate this. But again, is he, is he making all of this happen? Or is, does he just know that, uh, so is is it a package deal, right? I will disguise you as the Duke and I will arrange to have the Duke killed so that everything works out, right? Is that all Merlin, masterminding and orchestrating the entire thing? Or is this just Merlin knowing that the Duke is going to issue forth and die that night? And so, and, and, and to know what's more, that this, on this night, remember, he's already predict. he's already made a prediction, which is easy to, in the context here to sort of overlook, right? If we get too distracted by the question of, wait, Merlin, how are you going to disguise him to look like the Duke? Um, then, uh, um, then, you know, how, like, we might miss the fact that Merlin has already made a prediction for which we have no mechanism, right? He's already said, I'm going to take you to a grain, and when I do, you're going to sleep with her, and you're going to beget on her a child, right? He knows that... uh, That's not a given, (laughs) right? But apparently, Merlin knows it is certain. If So if they sleep together tonight, then Arthur is going to be begotten, right? Um... Would Arthur be begotten if the Duke dies and Uther waits, right, until they're lawfully married? Had everything played out except the bedtime visit, right, to a grain this night? It could have worked out the same way, right? The Duke would have died. The peace would have been established. He could have married a grain just like actually happened, right? The sleeping with her didn't have anything to do with any of that, um, except... The only conclusion, therefore, that I can draw is Merlin is actually implying if they don't sleep together now, tonight, it is on this night that Arthur will be begotten if he has sex with the grain. And in order for that to happen, the Duke has to die, because then if he does not die exactly when he does, then Arthur will be a bastard, and therefore that will be a problem with the inheritance of the kingship and all that. Um, So it's really tempting to say that Merlin is behind everything and that he is actually making all these things happen. But Merlin, I never answered your question for what it's worth. And I'm not claiming it to be worth very much because we get very little such that I feel like I'm mostly guessing my mostly guess would be no. I don't think he causes the death of the Duke. I think he knows the death of the Duke is going to happen or even trusts that the Duke is going to die, that that's going to work out. Um, because faith is a part of Merlin and what he does as well we'll come back to this. We'll, we'll have more Merlin adventures tonight and we'll return to these questions. Um, but these are really, really interesting things to, uh, uh, to, to, to think about. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, wait, no, 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 uh, Tim Merlin doesn't have to get the Duke out of the castle. Uther's entering a different castle. Remember he's riding 10 miles away to Tintagel. Um, Uh, So in a sense, actually, you could say, well, the plan kind of should be that Merlin's army needs to keep the Duke pinned here uh, at Terribil, because if the Duke were to follow them and show up at Tintaja when Uther's already there in his form, that will be no end awkward, right? Um, Yeah. But anyway, okay, so... uh, Some else says, "Oh oh whoa oh, oh uh so, so who who is this was asking this about uh, uh blah 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 about whether or not Igraine should have been able to recognize her husband or whether or not this person was her husband once he took her to bed. Yes, Sarah. Yes. No, that's a great question, Sarah. Um, Would you notice a difference in bedroom performance? Okay. Here we come across our first, probably our first instance. It's actually a little uncertain whether this is the first instance or not. Um, But I'll give a sort of a spoiler uh, because this is going to come up a lot. Rule. Two rules. (laughs) There are two rules about identifying people, right? Rule number one. Everybody in armor looks exactly identical. Okay, uh, so if someone is wearing strange armor, it is not possible to recognize them, even if they speak. Right? Doesn't matter. Right? Secondly, um, uh, secondly, the other rule is: in the dark, you can't tell the difference. Nobody can tell the difference between anybody in the dark. Right. Uh, so if you go to bed with somebody in a dark room, there's no telling who it is. It's just, it's not possible. Right. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Right. However, like I said, I'm not convinced that this necessarily is an instance of this phenomenon, which we will see many times over the course of Maori's works, um, because of what Merlin is doing here. Um, uh, Merlin says that he shall be like the Duke, her husband. Uh, and I don't see any reason to believe that um, he does not look like I, I, I can believe that Merlin has been quite thorough going. Right. Uh, he probably has has the Duke of Cornwall's scars and birthmarks, too. OK, I mean, I, I don't see any reason to believe that that's not the case. Notice the only hint that we get about this is when he says, um, uh, wait, ye make not many questions. With her nor her men, don't talk a lot, right? Because if you talk a lot, you're going to reveal the fact that you're that you know you're, that you're not the husband, right? Because you don't know anybody, you don't know the names of the guards, you don't know anybody. You, you're not going to be able to answer questions properly. If you start talking, you're going to give yourself away. Is how I take that, right? Um, but he's going to need some excuse, because obviously when he comes in in the middle of the night, she's going to be like, hi, honey, what's going on? Give me an update. You've been under siege. How's the battle going? Right. She's going to want to talk. She's going to want to ask questions. So he gives uh, Merlin gives Uther an excuse. Right. Say, you're, say you don't feel well. Right. And you just want to go to sleep. Um, yeah. Or, you know, well, like go to bed anyway. Um, and uh, you know, so that you don't have to talk. So I think that there's, there does not seem to be any question of there being any crack or opening, you know, in the disguise, in the visual disguise, um, and possibly tactile disguise for all we know, uh, of Uther here. Um, but, um, so maybe this isn't an instance, but even if, even if, you know, it's only his face or something that's changed, uh, still, um, it's dark, right? So, it's all it's all good. Carita says it's just like the uh the Jacob and Leah situation. Yes, yes. Now Jacob was drunk at the time, but still. Um yeah, that kind of thing happens, right? Um absolutely. Um yeah, yeah. Um Tony says I would assume that he didn't physically change Uther but that this is a glamour of some kind. Sounds like a good theory, right? No idea. I mean, I'd find it hard to believe that he was physically transformed as well, but then again, what do I know? Um, I haven't been to the right schools uh, as we will certainly see. So yeah, uh, Nancy, exactly there is a sh- uh, you're thinking I think you're uh, you must be thinking about all's well that ends well. Right. That's the bed swapping one where everyone is sleeping with somebody else and thinking that they're somebody else. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a fairly common trope, actually, uh, in throughout medieval romance. It's not just Mallory, but um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mike is making jokes about him wearing full plate mail in bed with his visor down. You know, of course, that that's how they actually did this in the Excalibur film, which is completely ridiculous. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. David is remembering that scene too. It's a scene that's kind of hard to get out of your mind, actually, once you've seen it. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we almost have to watch and talk about that movie after reading this book, but we'll get there. Well, well, that that's an issue for another month. Um, Yeah. Yeah, David, I know. I do too, I too wish I could not picture that scene. <laughs> that's yeah. Yeah. There are a bunch of scenes from that from that film that I would kind of like to forget. Um, anyhow. Anyhow. OK, um, so let's um, let's move on because we're good. Not that we understand much, but that's OK. OK. So this is after the Duke is dead and now we're sorting things out, right? Then all the barons, by own assent, pride the king of accord betwixt the lady agrine and him. They prayed the king of a cord. They're begging him to make peace. Now that the Duke is dead, Please, king, make peace. Remember, these are the barons that are making up his army. Them and their people are making up his They have sworn fealty to him. They've brought their men at arms to him to make up his army. There's no standing professional army, right? Uther doesn't own an army. Um, so they're saying, hey, we'd quite like to go home. Now that the duke is dead, surely you can make peace with the Lady of Grine. The king gaff him, la- gaff him leave, for fine will he have been accorded with her. So the king put all the trust in Ulfius, to entreat between them. So by the entreaty, at the last the king and she and she met to Now will ye do well, said Ulfius, our king is a lusty knicht, and weeviless, and my laddie agrine is a passing fire laddie. It were great joy unto us all, and it might please the king to mak her his queen. Unto that they were they all well accorded, and meved it to the king. And anon, like a losty knight, he assented thereto with a good will, with a good will. Sorry, and so in all haste they were married on a morning with great mirth and joy. And King Lot of Lothian and of Orkney then wedded Morgau's. That was Gawain's mother. That was Gawain's mother. And King Nentris of the land of Garlot wedded a line. All this was done at the request of King Uther. And the third sister. Morgan le Fay was put to school in a nunnery, and there she learned so much that she was a great clerk of nigromancy, and after she was wedded to King Uriens of the Land of Gore, that was Sir Ewain's le Blochman's father. That might be one of my favorite sentences in the entire book. It's definitely top five. Definitely top five. There are a couple others that actually, I think, uh, uh, (laughs) that that actually uh, rival it. But um, (laughs) the, the structure of that sentence, right? Uh, the third sister, Morgan Le Fay, was put to school in a nunnery, and there she learned so much that she was a great clerk of necromancy. <laughs> what do they teach them at these schools these days? Oh, man. um. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know what kind of nunnery she was sent to, but... Uh, <laughs> my favorite part of the sentence is the so much that the so much that is what makes this sentence, right? She learned so much that she was a great clerk of necromancy. So it's like, you know, there's like, there's grammar school. So if you can, if you get a little bit of learning, it's probably okay. Right. A little bit more learning might be good. Right. But if you, if you learn enough, it's straight to necromancy for you. Right. That's, uh, that's, there you go. Right, there you go. Uh, so now, by the way, I, 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 said negro, I said necromancy, which is probably actually um, uh, sloppy of me, um, because that's not actually what it is. Notice it's negromancy, uh, N-Y-G-R-O, which is very different, of course, from necromancy. Uh, I'm always tempted to say necromancy, because, of course, that's what it sounds like and looks like, but it's not necromancy. Necromancy, right? Necro means the dead. What is nigromancy? Negromancy means? What is that? What is that? Black magic. Exactly. Exactly. She was a great... Uh, uh, Negro means black or dark. Um, uh, so, The dark arts, Pam. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there was... Uh, uh, Mike, presumably, there was a nun of the dark arts. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So she learns black magic. Um, too much schooling. Too much schooling. And it's straight to negromancy for you. Um, that's... Kind of, uh, kind of amazing. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And no, Jordan, certainly there's nothing to do with black people here. It's just the same word, right? Uh, I mean, when when, uh, Africans were called Negroes, that just literally means uh, Negro is from the word that means black. Right. Um, So. uh, So, yeah, no, it's it's that that's that word, you know, which was a very general use word meaning black. Um, So literally, it just means she was a great clerk of black magic. Right. Of the dark arts. Uh James says the gaffer was right to be suspicious, right? Uh meaning no harm, and I hope no harm will come of it. Well, here is an extreme example, right, of harm coming of this. Um uh so uh <laughs> Tara says clearly she got the key to the forbidden library. Uh yeah, yeah, to the restricted section, you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um uh okay. Um Zach, excellent question. Um, Zach says that, of course, Merlin is involved in Christianity. Yes, absolutely. And we're going to be coming to that. Um, so with the necromancy that's involved here, uh, is magic and religion, are magic and religion tied together in some way in Mallory's world? Great question. No idea. Uh, um, notice and the other thing, the other conspicuous thing utterly not described or explained, rather. It seems a rather important point, but is never, ever explained. Why is she called Morgan Le Fay? She's called that literally from day one, right? She is introduced to us as the third sister, Morgan Le Fay. Without a hint as to why she is called Morgan Le Fay. Morgan the Fae, Morgan the Fairy, right? Um, some association with with fairies, right? But what association? We don't know! And we'll never know what association she has with fairies. That's just her name. Um, um, uh, Yeah, uh, Tara, that's a great question. Tara's uh, saying that uh, Morrigan, of course, is a Celtic goddess associated with death. Is there any connection with Morgan Le Fay? Nothing could be more likely. Um, But that's a kind of question that's way beyond the scope of, of this, right? It's very clear. Little makes it more obvious than the name of Morgan Le Fay Right. In the name of Morgan Le Fay, it is as obvious as it will be anywhere in this book that Mallory is inheriting traditions and to some extent not really fully digesting them. Right. So he's kind of regurgitating some matter okay I'm extending this metaphor perhaps further than is wise uh, but he's sort of regurgitating some matter without which either he doesn't get or he just doesn't really care about right Um so we can't go to Mallory to ask about Morgan's name, right? And the possible connection between Morgan and Morgan and all I mean it's, it's a great question and a really interesting one, but Mallory is not gonna give us the answer to that question, right? Um and I think that there's like a zero percent chance that um Maori knows the answer to that question. And there seems no chance that Mallory cares about the answer to that question. Um but um Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, as with so many things in Mallory, I feel like I just have to kind of observe that they're there and not really attempt to explain them because he gives no explanation, right? And so here we have the juxtaposition. Right. She goes to a school in a nunnery. Um, and yes, there is every reason to believe that this is really just a nunnery, uh, Lee, that I, I don't think this is a euphemism. Right. Of any kind. Um, a nunnery is where you would send a girl to school, especially a nobly born girl. Right. That's that's that would be a, there were schools for girls in nunneries. Uh, women could be educated uh, and that it would be at a nunnery school that that would happen. Right. So totally normal. Right. Um, she learned she became a great clerk of nigromancy there. Does that mean that it was a bad school, that she was a bad student? person, right? So, like, is is it the school's fault? Is it the student's fault? Um, Is negromancy and independent study that she went on. So having been taught to read, see here back to the gaffers uh, concern, um, uh, having been taught to read, did she just go on into the restricted section and read the wrong books? Right. Uh, and become a clerk of negromancy that way. Was she taught negromancy? Right. I mean, it was this a minor at this school, you know, could you major in nigromancy at this particular nunnery school? Um, thus making it, I think most contemporary people would agree a bad school. Um, uh, it was certainly a dangerous school. Um, we don't really, we don't really know, right? Um, Mike, uh, she's called a clerk of negromancy. Um Clerk is a very vague word. Um, uh, clerk can be used to describe somebody who is involved in reading and writing for a living. It can be, uh, a student. It can be used generally for all priests. Normally it means like a literate person. It certainly means a literate person. Uh, usually someone who is sort of identified as a literate person, right? Like that's like part of their job, part of their identity, right? Um, uh, I mean, you can know how to read without necessarily being a clerk, but you, some people might call you a clerk if you know how to read, right? So um, uh, she could read and write nigromancy, right? Apparently, right? Um, so, yeah, Boomful says she doesn't, uh, uh, clerk doesn't work with her hands. Yes, though, of course, uh, women wouldn't be in that category, right? That is, women wouldn't, uh, well, we'll come to the estates. But women are kind of uh, kind of different. Um, Tomas is suspecting that uh, negromancy was just an elective course. So, yeah, it's probably, probably. <laughs> That's true, Nancy. It could be an evil school without being a bad school. It could be a, it could be a good evil school. Right. Uh, highly ranked among the, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, the U.S. News and World Report. Like if you're looking uh, if you're looking to go into negromancy. Right. You might definitely want to choose this particular nunnery school. Uh, absolutely. Yes, yeah, Stephen, a scribe is definitely a clerk. Definitely. Um, uh, uh, a priest is a clerk because a priest is supposed to be able to read. They weren't all literate, but they're supposed to be able to read. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll sign them off for a necromancy degree. No, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. No, we uh, uh we've pretty much decided that we're not going to expand our curriculum into necromancy. It was certainly not at the in this stage. Uh yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a fascinating question, Nancy. Uh, Nancy asks, "Is Mallory a clerk? No, no. He would not. He he would not call himself that, and he does not call himself that. Right? Mallory is a knight." He's not a clerk, um, but he's a knight who wrote this book, right? Um, and who obviously can read as well. So, like I said, literacy alone does not make you a clerk. Um, it has to be more about um, being a, uh, being part of your like identity. So, I, in calling her a great. A, a great clerk of necro- a great clerk of necromancy nigromancy. sorry um it's making a pretty big statement right um emphasizing that she be- it's not just that she picked up a little negromancy she didn't just minor in nigromancy, right she majored in nigromancy. she has become a great clerk of it she's um she's like a master negromancer now um yeah yeah um okay cool Let's see. So yeah, in around there, we've also married everyone off. Oh, we had a question, word question before. And by the way, please do keep. These questions coming, don't be afraid to ask if there's a word on the screen that you don't know, right? And you don't, or a phrase that you don't understand, please ask because I promise you there will be dozens of other people uh, who are wondering the same thing. So, uh, very, very happy to try to explain it. I won't always be able to do it, uh, but uh, happy to try to explain words and phrases. Uh, Somebody uh, a while back, uh, uh, wiveless, that just literally means wifeless, Uh, doesn't have a wife. Uh, He's a lusty. Knight and Wiveless. Um, now lusty is interesting in its two usages here. Our king is a lusty knicht and wiveless. And then later uh, he assented like a lusty knicht. He assented with a good will. So what does lusty mean? Now you guys have probably heard me talk about this before. The word lust or list means desire, want. Um, in a general way, it does not exclusively refer to sexual desire, though that seems kind of wrapped up in both of these particular usages of it, right? Um, when Opheus says, our king is a lusty knight and wifeless, I, he is not saying like our king is like a Randy goat, right? You know, our king, you know, uh, can't keep his hands off of women like he's not talking about uh, he's not ascribing to Uther a, a, a an overlarge sexual appetite right so that is not what lusty knight means in that situation but it's not totally unlike what uh it means either right um vigorous yes Boomful, but there but with a sexual implication there as well right he's 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 not impotent like He's wifeless, right? He's, he, and he's not old, right? Um, that is to say, the reason Ulfius is saying this, Ulfius' motivation for pointing this out to the barons, th- this is a political issue, right? Uh, Uther could still beget a child, right? Uther has no heir yet. He could still beget a child. So, Igraine is a passing fair lady, right? Uther is a lusty knight. Let's get these two together and then maybe you know, we can, uh, we can get, so yeah, I, I do think it means vigor and vitality, Lynn, but also I do think with the sense, uh, Mike of virile as well, right? Um, he is, he is not impotent, uh, is I think clearly one of the things that lusty when it's used often does just mean like full of vim and vigor, right? Full of get up and go. Uh, but, um, but in this context, Lusty knight and wifeless clearly means he doesn't have a wife, but he could clearly uh, get it done, and therefore might produce an heir. This is a very practical concern for Ulfius, one of his chief knights, uh, and his and uh, and Uther's barons, right? And so then the second time, um, unto that they all well accorded and moved it to the king, right? So they 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 agreed with Ulfius and they. Put the proposition to the king, and anon, like a lusty knight, he assented thereto with a good will. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he's the kingdom's most eligible bachelor, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, he uh, and so I—I I, I think that's fairly similar. Um, but I don't think. When Olvia says our king is a lusty knight and wifeless, I get lusty in that context has almost like a a technical air, right? Um, almost a, almost a technical sound to it. Like he is he is, um. Again, like you know, saying he is he is he is sexually potent right he might be able to to beget an heir um he's speaking in an almost dispassionate sense it's not just like a compliment right um he's he's speaking in in a uh uh precise way about the situation um the second time i don't think it's quite so precise um I don't think it means like a virile or sexually potent knight, he assented thereto with a good will. The second one is the more general, I think, the more general like a lusty knight, right? So like a you know, he um you know like a like a healthy, vigorous guy immediately leaps up and says, Yeah, all right, I'm uh I am behind this. Um yeah, Mike says the king is viable. Yeah, it's almost more like that. Um it's certainly not an off-color remark or something designed to be that's not like locker room talk. Um this is this is political language, right? Um definitely. Um Yeah. Okay. Uh other things that I wanted to say about this. Um No. I don't think so. Let's keep going. So they get married. Um, uh, quick question. Was it considered unusual for the wedding to happen so quickly in all hast? Uh, I don't know about uh, unusual. Um, Uther obviously has cause to haste, right? Um, he would, I think, clearly want to consummate the marriage before many people got too worried about her pregnancy right Uh, because he knows she's pregnant because Merlin told him Um, but but, um, uh, anyway um, is it so is it unusual and no remember they're pushing for it they would want the marriage consummated ASAP. The barons would want the marriage consummated ASAP because the consummation of the marriage would also be the consummation of the peace, and so they can go home. Um, So I don't think the marriage in all haste there is um, strange. uh, Though, of course, we do know that Uther has more than one reason. Well, three reasons, right, to uh, want to uh, hustle that wedding along, right? Uh, First, to uh, okay. When well, I want to say first for one reason, uh, to, uh, to consummate the piece second to conceal or to, you know, smooth over the issue of her pregnancy. But of course, third, and I suspect first and foremost, because he still has the hots for her and wants to sleep with her again. Uh, so, you know that, and for all we can see, by the way, it looks like they're going to go on to have a perfectly happy marriage. <laughs> I didn't write it. Um, So, um, yeah. Uh, okay. Right. So it's, um, Oh, Oliver asks, how does she know that it was someone disguised and not her husband? Because she heard that her husband died that night. Right. She, she heard the clear story. That her husband was killed on the night she knows that she was sleeping with this guy who she was pretty sure was her husband on the night that her husband was dead so she knows that the guy she was sleeping with wasn't her husband but she doesn't have any idea uh who it who it was um waxed great question great word um then queen Igrine waxed daily greater and greater waxed uh, waxed uh, to increase wax like the moon, right? The moon waxes and the moon wanes, right? Um, uh, to wax means to get bigger. Um, so she's waxing daily greater and greater. Um, I would not recommend using this phrase to any pregnant women of your acquaintance. I'm just saying, I don't think, um, uh, I think I avoided saying out loud uh, at any point to my wife during her two pregnancies, that she was waxing daily greater and greater, but I have to confess I thought of it <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> James has sound advice. See, he, hey, well, just trying to trying to share the benefit of my personal experience here. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, then Queen Agrine waxed daily greater and greater. So it befell after within half a year. As King Uther lie by his queen, and he asked her by the faith she ought to him, whose was the child within her body? Then was she sore abashed to ye to yev answer. Dismay you not, said the king, but tell me the truth, and I shall love you the better by the faith of my body. Sir, said she, said she, I shall tell you the truth. The psalm neeked that my lord was deed, the hour of his death, as his knictes record, there come into my castle of Tintagel, a man leek, like my lord, in speech and in countenance, and to knictes with him, in likeness of his two knictes, Barsias and Jordans. And so I went unto bed with him, as I ought to do with me lord. And the psalm knict, the as I shall answer unto God, this child was begotten upon me. That is truth, said the king, as ye say, for it was I myself that come in the likeness. And therefore dismay you not, for I am father to the child. And there he tell her all the cause, ha- how, it, how it was by Maryland's consile. Then the queen made great joy when she knew who was the father of her child. Okay, um... Sarah asks, is he teasing her or testing her with this question? Um, And Karita's wondering what he's doing here. I think this is a test. I think he's testing her. Um, Why is he testing her? Does he have any cause to test her honesty and truth? Not that we know of. But, again, that's not really something that we... uh, um, Uh, that Bowery seems interested in, right? Um, He does want to know. Um, Maybe he's wanting... I I think... I guess I would say two things, Sarah. I think he is testing her. Will she tell me the truth? Um, The truth about that night? There's lots of reasons for her not to, right? I mean, this is a sketchy thing that happened and inexplicable. She can't explain it, right? All she can say... She... Tells the truth and she tries to, you know, so I, I went to, so I slept with this guy. I still don't know who he was, but like, I ought to do that with my Lord. My, I thought he was my husband. He came and he said he wanted to go to bed with me and I should, I'm supposed to go to bed with him when he says he wants to go to bed with me. So I did. So I totally didn't do anything wrong, but I have no idea who that guy was. And this child was begotten upon me. Is she going to tell him the truth? And she does quite bravely. I would say, um, And he seems to appreciate her honesty. The other thing that I would say is exactly, Boomful, exactly. I think he's also testing Merlin here, right? And um, because Merlin said she was going to beget a child that night, I think that one of the things... um, I think that one of the things is that... she could he doesn't know when the child was conceived right the child could have been conceived before one of the things he's establishing is he has had merlin's assurance that she is going to get pregnant it's going to be his child right and that the child's going to be king and it's going to be awesome but um but he only has merlin's assurance on that uh it she could be, have been already pregnant right she could have been pregnant from her husband from before and so that I think is one of the things that also seems to be behind it. Um, now, Matt, I agree that on the um, on the whole, his explaining this to her is certainly an attempt at reassurance. Because um, uh, I agree, Matt, she's got to be wondering if her unborn child is is was sired by a fairy or a demon or something. Um, yeah, uh, sure. I mean, that's got to be, that's got to be a candidate, right? Was she visited by some incubus or something? Um, cause I mean, something weird, right? Uh, capital W weird was happening that night in more than one sense, right? Um, something weird, something very strange, something deeply uncanny happened that evening. She knows that that's the, literally the only fact she knows, right? Um, was that there was some enchantment involved that evening. Um, Yeah. Um, So she, and she is happy. She makes great joy when she knows who is the father of her child. And Matt here, I'm wondering like, Oh, hooray! My child is 100% human! That's a great relief! I'm sure that that is a great relief, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Caritas says, I'd be mad as hell. <laughs> I'd, yeah, uh, and his, like doing this like tell me what happened and i'm going to pretend i don't already know thing would be like the icing on the cake of uh trouble that you know this guy is serving for himself here. Uh yeah, no, i hear that. Um again, like if she has been suspecting that um if she's been suspecting that her child is some demonic offspring, then you know I'd probably make great joy, too. Again, just the fact that uh, he has all human chromosomes is probably uh, a a, a cause for great joy, right? Um, uh, (laughs) Stephen says, hooray! Now I know who deceived me, so I can poison the correct meal. Yeah. um, uh, (laughs) I'm not going to say much uh in Maori's defense here and i'm going to say even less in Uther's defense i have no interest on being briefed for the defense of Uther Pendragon here uh in this in his performances in this whole scenario and i don't think he's being held up for praise or emulation um even by Maori himself one thing that i will say This kind of thing happened quite a bit. <laughs> Not this great way. Hang on, let me come in again. Not the whole, like, sorcerer's enchantment to disguise you as your. Because this is disguise some other dude. No, I don't mean that. that. That didn't happen very often. But the scenario of the king is at war against my husband and the king and my husband dies in battle and we want to establish peace. Everybody wants to establish peace. So I get married off to the guy who just, uh, who just either personally or his army just killed my husband. That happened all the time. Like this is, um, when we, if you are imagining, especially, you know, if you are a woman imagining yourself back into a grains position here, there's a, a, there are some things that are kind of different about this world and about the kind of framework of, of your world. Right. And this, this kind of thing happens a lot. Right. Um, uh, And yeah, Richard III, uh, Jennifer uh, uh, Pope is pointing out and, 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 and uh, Matt as well. Absolutely. Um, The, Perseverance that many historical medieval women that we knew that we know showed in being passed from one man to another, and the way that they navigated their own way through those political waters, um, and especially one of the realities that is one one common thread that we see among many medieval women who are involved in politics on that level, right? Um, uh, through the middle ages is she's going to want to preserve her child right there are several reasons for her to make great joy when she knows who is the father of her child, right? This doesn't mean because I love Uther with all my heart and I am so glad that the baby is his, right? That's not how we're supposed to read that. I don't, can't imagine that that was even in Mallory's mind, right? And that he's asking us to believe that. I don't think that's even the issue, right? But there are several reasons for her to make great joy. One, we've already mentioned, hey, hey, the baby's human, right? Well, let's, let's celebrate about that. Um. Uh, so that's... That's one. But it's not just that. Right. If what if the baby had been the dukes? What's Uther going to do? Right. Is he going to is he going to kill it? Right. Is he gonna, I mean, that's not a great situation. He's king. He wants an heir. Right. Um, if. I mean, she's pregnant by this guy who came to her in likeness of her husband, it wasn't her husband that by its again. So that would be bad, by the way. Right. If she were pregnant by her husband and now married to Uther, that would be at least awkward. Um, but um, uh, but she if it were literally anybody but Uther who had slept with her and begotten the child, she'd be in a bed. Her baby would be in a very bad situation and might be killed out of hand. Right. Um, and she could be in a bad situation, right? This conversation could end very badly for her legally. Right. I mean, this is, this is a high stress situation. Um, And everything has resolved peacefully and really optimally. Right. Her old husband is dead. She has been politically married to the King. She is now the queen of England in a position. of So things have come out relatively well. Right? And her child, oh, she gets to keep her child. And what's more, her child is going to be the legal heir of Uther Pendragon. So, win win situation if you're not thinking about it from the point of view of her feelings, right? And it's not just about her feelings personally being pushed aside or women's feelings in general being pushed aside. And I'm not saying they're not, but what I'm saying is they didn't think about marriage the way that we do. As Katriana says, medieval attitude towards marriage, at least among the higher classes, was mostly a what's love got to do with it situation. In fact, it is, um, it is in fact, um, it is, it is known, it is received wisdom that husbands and wives don't love each other. There's, if husbands and wives do love each other it's unusual there's not, not there's the opposite of the assumption that husbands and wives will love each other um, the duke and Egraine seem to get along pretty well they seem to work together pretty well um yeah uh but anyway i don't want i don't want to lay too much emphasis on this but yes marriage is a corporate merger Matt and both sides benefit Aggra has benefited from this right she's in a good place here and when as soon and the only thing that was up in the air right this whole situation with the war and the siege and everything could have gone really badly could have gone better but it you know in the end she's now the Queen of England and but there was still the big question mark right the big thing hanging over her head uh, possibly literally an axe hanging over her head um, about the baby and who is the father of the baby and now who ah okay It's all fine. Everything's good, right? Um, Stephen says, is that why the courtly love tradition arose? I said I don't want to talk about courtly love too much, but I brought it up, so I will a little bit here. Yes, Tomas, the whole idea behind courtly love is that um, husbands and wives don't love each other. Love, by definition, is extramarital, okay? Love is a thing that you have for someone else's wife, not for your wife, Uther is in the position of a lover. He is acting as a lover when he is unmarried and falling in love with another man's wife. That is to- which is why Opheus. Remember Opheus doesn't bat an eye at this, right? Sure. yeah, okay. No big deal, right? Um, and yeah Arthur, it is it is literally a rule when Andreas Campoanis writes the art of courtly love, it's literally codified. you know, you cannot love. Your spouse. That is absolutely illegal. Um, So, um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really it's been an established thing for centuries. Now, it's also even when that was written in the 12th century, the art of courtly love, I mean, it's kind of a joke. Uh, I mean, to make an absolute rule and say no husbands and wives ever love each other is silly. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a funny exaggeration, but it's a funny exaggeration. Um, it's, it's a funny exaggeration of the, the, um, uh, of a reality, right. Of a, of a, of a social and political reality. Um, Jennifer says, what happens when you fall in love with someone else's wife and then she becomes your wife? uh. You know, Jennifer, there there's a court case about this in the court of love in Andreas Kapolanis, and the answer is uh, you can't love her anymore. It's against the rules. Um, but, of course, Jennifer, again, as we see, nobody really abides by those rules. Uther is happy as a clam, apparently, with a grain after they get married, right? He kind of got what he wanted, and... Um, And uh, she uh, things kind of work out. So it's hard because I don't want it's. I don't want to say, like, pay no attention to the apparent marginalization of women. Like, I'm not trying to I'm I'm trying to be that guy. Right. Um, But I do want to (sighs) say. With this book, as with all medieval works, if you incautiously put for whatever it is, Women, men, any circumstances, if you play the how would I feel if I were in her position, if you try to identify with the characters and by identification mean projecting your own perspective and your own feelings to those people, you're on shaky ground generally. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, OK. That's a a difficult thing to talk about. In a lot of ways, it's a difficult thing to talk about. But, uh, yeah, there we are. Okay, uh, let's keep going. Why not? Because, hey, hey, we're out of last week's reading, finally. This does not bode well. Okay. Oh, yes. uh, Jordan, I think you were saying, uh, I've been saying, like, hey, she gets to keep her child. Except she does until Merlin shows up, right? Ah, uh, soon came Merlin unto the king and said, Sir, you must purvey you for the nourishing of your child. As thou Walt, said the king, be it. Well, said Merlin, I knew a lord of yours in this land that is a passing true man, and a faithful, and he shall have the nourishing of your child, and his name is Sir Ector, and he is a lord of fire leave, lord in many parties in England and Wallace. And this Lord, Sir Ector, let him be sent for to come and speak with you, and desire him for your desire him yourself as he loveth you, that he will put his own child to nourishing to another woman, and that his wife nourish yours, and Juan the child is born, let it be delivered to me at yonder privy postern unchristened, so like as Merlin devised it was done, and Juan Sir Ector was come. He made fiance to the king for to nourish the child like as the king desired, and there the king granted Sir Ector great rewardis. Then when the laddie was delivered, the king commanded to knictes and to laddies to tuck the child bound in a cloth of gold, and that ye deliver deliver him to what poor man ye meet at the postern yacht of the castle. So the child was delivered unto Merlin, and so he barre it forth unto Sir Ector and Maud an holy man to christen him and nomad him Arthur and so Ector's wife nourished him with her own pap okay um uh, yes Oliver leave load does mean uh livelihood um living uh it, it, it's about his amount of property. Yeah. A fair live load in many parties of England and Wales. He's got, uh, he's got great lands in, uh, uh, that are in both England and Wales, right? He's got many estates. Yeah. Good. Um, Carita Ector is a good name. Uh, one thing that's easy to forget that I always find myself easy to, f- easy, easily forgetting. Um, uh, who's he named after? who's he named after? Hector. Yeah, Hector the Trojan. Absolutely, Hector the Trojan. Um he should make you think of Hector the Trojan. I don't know why. Um it's a popular name. Uh you should know did you know that uh England is the heir of Troy? Right? Did you know that? That, like, the English are, like, of Trojan ancestry? Because of Brutus, Zach, exactly, yeah. So, um, so here's how it worked, just so that you know how this is, and because this is, this is, everybody knows this is historically true. So, Troy fell, but Aeneas escapes, right? So Aeneas escapes Troy, and he ends up going to Italy, right? And uh, marrying Lavinia and uh, his descendant, he's going to be the ancestor of Romulus, who's going to found Rome, right? So the Romans are, uh, are originally uh, from Troy. But then uh, Brutus, uh, right, uh, uh, he's also of Trojan descent, and he leaves Italy and sails around and lands in Britain. And uh, Britain is named after Brutus. That's how it gets, that's why it's called Britain. Everybody knows this, right? So, uh, So the English are descended from Brutus who uh, was descended from Aeneas, who is from Troy. So the, um, the yes, this is from Geoffrey of Monmouth, uh, 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 Dolorous Stroke, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, uh, anyway, this is, um, this just, just so that you know, the uh, the English throughout the Middle Ages associate themselves with Troy. Uh, so that, that there would be an English knight named Sir Ector totally uh, makes sense. Anyhow, okay. So, Nancy, you have hit on the head uh, uh, exactly. You've hit, hit the nail on the head exactly. Like I, that, I have precisely the same questions as you about this passage. Nancy asks, she says, I don't really get why Merlin does this at all. Uh, it seems to cause lots of problems, some of which seem extremely foreseeable. Is he just trying to cause trouble? Um, yeah, so... Because, and as Tim says, why does Merlin do this? The child is legit, right? It's there's nothing there's why keep there's no secret that needs to be kept here, right? Why is he kept secret? Um and um yeah, uh so okay. And yes, Nancy, the other child they give to the wet nurse is Kay. That's right. Yeah, Sir Kay uh is uh, is the foster brother uh of uh of Arthur there. Um yeah. So, um, let's see what we can what we can piece together. Oh, uh, David, no, not Caesar's Brutus, different Brutus, unrelated Brutus. Yeah, yeah, it was a popular name. <laughs> uh, different Brutus. Okay. Um, who knows what? I find this terribly difficult to follow. Um, and why is... Th- what is being kept secret and from whom? Okay, because it sounds like... It sounds like... The king is calling actor, Sir Hector to him in order to have him raise his child. Now, that wouldn't be utterly unknown, right? Um, uh, But a little bit weird, but okay. Anyway, uh, but it seems public, more or less public, what he does with Sir Ector. Merlin says you should desire him yourself as he loveth you, so he's supposed to, Uther is supposed to do this personally, make a personal request. So it's not done through intermediaries or anything, so there's no question of disguises, right? Um, or anything like that. Oh, he's not on Uther's part, and apparently not on the child's part? Um, and you're supposed to ask him, as he loves you, to take the child, to put his own child, oh, give his own child to a wet nurse, right? And that his own wife should nourish your child and when the child is born let it be delivered to me at yonder privy, privy postern unchristened. Okay, unchristened. Why unchristened? Someone was asking this. Um uh yeah, Jennifer Minor was asking this. Yeah, why why uh, why unchristened? Okay. Um yeah, Rachel was just asking the same question. One reason for unchristened would be to conceal his name, right? So that nobody else knows what his name is going to be. So that when so that sounds like that sounds like something that is put in place in order to protect the identity of the child. So that when Sir Ector is raising a foster child along with his own son, uh, the foster child will be named Arthur, but nobody else will know that this is King Uther Pendragon's son. Okay, that would seem to be the way. And the whole Privy Postern thing, um, and Merlin himself, Merlin is the only one who is disguised in this whole business, right? Um, uh, Not to Uther, right? Uther knows that it's Merlin. Does Igraine know that it's Merlin? I don't know. Um... Igraine knows she's giving away her baby, but she doesn't know that, uh, necessarily know that it's Merlin. Um, And Mike, yeah, Igraine can't know his name either, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, I agree that Merlin would want to give him a name, Tony, but surely Merlin could just tell Uther, right? Name him Arthur. That's totally what you should do, right? I bet Uther would do that, right? Um, So I think it's not just that. It's about secrecy. So, Okay, so why is Merlin disguising himself? The effect of Merlin disguising himself would be so that nobody knew to whom the baby was given. So the concept has to be that he's going to be raised in secret. So when Arthur is raised as a foster child in Sir Ector's household. Nobody knows this is Uther's child. Nobody can track it. Nobody can trace it back. Because it was brought to Sir Ector by a a weird poor dude, right? And it was given by the two knights and the two ladies at the Privy Postern to a random poor dude that they didn't know uh, either or recognize. So I guess this just means that it's secret, except not from Hector. Hector knows, I guess. Um, Lynn, I have to imagine that Merlin thinks he needs to keep uh, Arthur safe. Um, it has to be for the protection of Arthur. I, I say has to. I can see no other logical reason. Uh, a Privy Postern. Okay, so a Postern. A Postern is a, a side door. Uh, so your wall, right, will have a gate, right? A main gate, which you can open and people can come in and out. It'll also have a Postern gate, which is just a little side door. And it might seem weird to have a back door on a, in a defensive fortification, right? But it actually makes some sense. A Postern is generally a small, very thick door. Only one person at a time can pass. It's deliberately narrow. And um, Only one person at a time can pass through a postern gate. Uh, So people rarely waste time attempting to force their way through a postern gate because they're really easy to fortify because the door is tiny. You can, like, pile up enormous things behind it. You're not going to take a battering ram to a postern gate. So a postern gate is not a big vulnerability, usually, in a wall, unless you can sneak in or... Just you know, trick them into letting you in the postern gate or something. You may remember there's a postern gate in the Hornburg, right? Where uh, where Aragorn and uh, Aamir and unbeknownst to them Gimli uh, come out in order to save the gates, right? Um, uh, so that the, there's a postern gate there, right around the corner from the gates, right uh, of the Hornburg. So anyway, yeah. So um, uh, so and privy just means private, uh, small, quiet, out of the way, right? Um, uh. Again, the the darkness and secrecy of that transaction, right? If you don't take him to the main gate, right, don't take him out into the street, uh, take him over, off to this privy postern, and uh, at, the, at this, you know, dark back door, there will be a poor man waiting, and he'll take the baby, and you'll never see him again, and no one will know who he is. Um, but notice, um, notice that uh, he tells him, Merlin tells Uther, what he's going to name him, right? Uh, Oh, no, he doesn't tell him here what he's going to name him. I'm sorry. He he, he christens him Arthur, and then Hector's wife takes him. Um, He's told Uther that the child is going to be great, right? And that it's going to be for his own protection um, that he's he's doing this. Um, Mike, yeah, I suspect that the reason for this, that Merlin's plan here, is that we know Uther's going to die. I think Merlin knows that Uther's going to die and that he's going to die while Arthur is very young. And that uh, we know for a fact that had Arthur been there, the openly accepted and declared prince, there would have been troubles uh, because people don't want him already when he's older. If he had come to the throne when he was four... um, there would have been great discontent. And probably plots to kill him. Do I know that for a fact? No, but Merwin seems to think so, so that's good enough for me. Um. David uh, uh, Erbach asks if there's any significance to Hector's wife doing the breastfeeding rather than a servant-nurse. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. I mean, Merlin insists on it, so yes, there's a significance to it because Merlin insists on it. I'm not a hundred percent sure what the um, what the purpose of it is exactly um is this going to be you know is by being a uh, is being breastfed by a noble woman going to be better for him long-term? It seems possible that Maori might be thinking that way. Noble paps, yeah, as long as it's... It, he's he, He's got to be fed at noble paps. Uh, that seems to be possible. It um, seems very likely, uh, even, I would say. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the idea of... The closeness, I do think that there is a kind of uh, uh, symbolism, Craig, to it. I I do agree with that as well. Um, It's also, it's kind of like metonymy for, we want you to take this child to your own hearts, right? We want you to to fully embrace him as part of your family. Um, Not just to kind of, you know, raise him and make him live in a cupboard under the stairs or something like that. Um, Yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's keep going. And then, hey, uh, this is uh, Uther after the battle. This is, by the way, after Uther has been hauled to the battle in a horse litter, right? Because he's sick and his uh, uh, his armies are losing. And Merlin says, your armies will be defeated unless you're there. Uh, so go, even if you have to be dragged along in a horse litter. So they do drag him to the battle in a horse litter and his people win, right? And Ophius and Brastius do great deeds. And then he fell passing sore sick, so that three days and three nichtes he was speechless. Wherefore all the barons made great sorrow, and asked Merlin what counsel were best. There nis none other remedy, said Merlin, but God will have his will. But look, but look all but look ye all barons, bay before King Uther to mourn, and God and I shall mock him to spake. And God and I will make him to speak. Oh, there's Merlin. So on the morn, all the barons with Merlin come to come to for the king. Then Merlin said aloud unto King Uther, "Sire, shall your son Arthur be king after your dies of this realm with all the appertenance?" Then Uther Pendragon torned him and said in the herring of them all. I give him God's blessing and mine, and bid him pry for my soul, and righteously and worshipfully that he climb the croon upon forfeiture of my blessing, and therewith he yelled up the ghost, and then was he entered as long as longed to a king, wherefore the queen fierygrine made great made great sorrow, and all the barons interred. Um, uh, interred, of course. I said entered uh, before. No, interred. Uh, he was interred. He was buried. Okay. Um, okay. Well, so much for secrecy of his name. <laughs> right? yes, here he is uh, openly declaring, Sire, shall your son Arthur be king after your day's of this realm, what he is, a son, Arthur. Now, maybe, maybe uh, Arthur is a super common boy's name. Arthur Arthur's just littered all over the place, right? And so we don't know which Arthur is the one that's the son of Uther. Um, but, uh, yeah, exactly. Catriona says, I envision the barons going, what, son? Arthur? Who are we talking about? Um, yeah, they don't know, right? I mean, they know that the king had a, you know, that a grain had a kid, um, but uh, nobody seems to know anything about this until Merlin comes out and outs Arthur, right? And, 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 uh, has Uther publicly give him his blessing and, uh, <clears throat> call him king, uh, and ask him to pray for his soul, right? That all is proper and everything so I guess he's not supposed to be secret after all, or it's now a bad secret or a poorly kept secret. Um, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm trying to understand. I don't understand. Um, uh, let's keep going. <laughs> let's just keep going. Um, now we have the sword in the stone now uh, uh the sword, of course, in the stone. now keep in mind, keep in mind that when this is all when this is all happening, this is happening at Christmas time, and it's happening at Christmas time because Merlin arranged it. Merlin goes to the Archbishop of Canterbury and tells him to command everybody to come together, right um. In the greatest church in London, everyone, all the nobles are supposed to come together in this one place on pain of cursing, right? Uh, that cursing in the context, when you're talking about the archbishop, that means excommunication, right? Threaten excommunication to everybody who doesn't come here at Christmas to this feast. And the archbishop is like, okay, Merlin, you got it, right? Um, so in the greatest church of London, whether it were polis or not, the French book maketh no mention, all the estates were uh, were long or die in the church for to pray. And when matins and the first mass was done, there was seen in the churchyard against the high altar a great stone foursquare, like unto a marble stone, and in midst thereof was like an anvil of steel a foot on high, and therein stack a fire-sweared Knocked be the point, and letters there were written in gold about the swerd, that said in thus, Whoso pulleth out this swerd of this stone, and unveiled, is wise king, born of all England. Then the people marviled and told it to the archbishop. I command, said the archbishop, that ye keep you within your church, and pray unto God, still, that no man touch the swerd, till the high mass be all done. So, when all masses were done, the Lord is went to behold the stone and the sword, and when they saw the scripture, some aside, such as would have been king, but none meeked stare the sword, nor mave it. All right. um, The context here this is Christmas, right? When God became. Man, When God intervened and Merlin is saying, pray to God that he who intervened at Christmas and came into our world will intervene again. Why? Because there is great threat of war in England. Uther has been dead, I think, for some time now. Right. The passing of time is a little hard to gauge here, Um, but it's been some time anyway. And there are some who have a notion about being king. Uh, and uh, those are all gathered together in one place. This is a miracle, explicitly a miracle, um, a miracle deliberately orchestrated by Merlin, with credit given to God, right? The archbishop involved. Notice the connection with the mass, right? During the mass. Why is that important? Why is that important? Why is it important that it happens during the mass? What's happening in the mass? What is the mass? When we're talking about the mass, what are we talking about? No Catholics? <laughs> what happens in the mass? Yes, yes, communion, the transubstantiation, the Eucharist is what happens. Absolutely. Um, if I got no answers, then I got all the answers all at once. The 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 Eucharist and the Eucharist is a miracle. Please let's not forget this. And what happens? What kind of miracle is it? The miracle is itself the reenactment of the incarnation the christ mass is a really important moment therefore it's the highest this is why this is one of the highest masses of the year right because the mass itself when god performs the miracle which happens every time mass goes on right when the bread and wine are made into uh the body and blood of jesus right Jesus has descended again Jesus has been in incarnate again in the elements right not in the same way exactly that he was in the incarnation when you know when he was incarnated in the womb of the virgin mary but very similar right so while the mass is going on you have to imagine here right the archbishop of canterbury standing in the greatest church in london uh with his back to the congregation holding the host up right Uh, and saying, hoc est corpus, this is the body, right? Uh, And at that moment, wham, sword in stone, right, out in the courtyard of the church. There is a very explicit connection, like a double connection being made uh, between the incarnation and the sword and the stone, right? So this is Is it a miracle? Is it a sign from God? Is it showing, uh, you know, is is this a miracle which plainly demonstrates God's choice of who is going to be king? Absolutely, yes. That's what's going on. But that's not only what's going on, right? There's more than that going on. It is the... the. I was about to say a crashingly anticlimactic thing. The incarnation is very special. Yes, arguably unique. Right. Uh, uh, yes. Um so um David, yes, we have parallels here between the, the the parallel is being made between Jesus and And Arthur. Right. Um, Yes, that is definitely one of the things that's happened. David uh, Urbach says, as Jesus appeared, unlooked for by the masses to save mankind, so would Arthur appear, unlooked for, to save England from anarchy and invasion. Yes. Yes. Um, It isn't. It is not only that God is intervening in such a way as to make it clear which person he wants to be king of England. That is happening, but it is more than that, right? That the uh the mysterious child which is going to be discovered, right? Uh who's the one who is among them, uh, you know, whom they have not valued, right, and whom they have taken for granted, um uh is going to be revealed, right, to be uh uh you know, to be the king to be the representative of God among them. There is here a deliberate parallel between Arthur and Jesus. Um, and Jesus as ruling king is very common, that's very popular. Jesus, of course, uh, uh, Jesus's worldly career was one of humility, right? <clears throat> but again, Catholics can help me with this. What is Jesus doing now? After the ascension, right? So Jesus lived, died, was buried. He descended into hell. Then what happens? Right? Finish the creed. What happens after that? And then he rose on high. Yes. And and sits on the right hand of the Father. Yes. Jesus is currently reigning at the right hand of the father yes absolutely so uh, Jesus as triumphant king is a thing right that is a that is a, so, I mean it is true that uh, you know, th- this is not to say that the medievals did not think about you know Jesus and the crown of thorns and Jesus as uh, as the humble servant and all of that that's all very important too but so is Jesus as, as reigning and triumphant king um, so uh, so yeah yeah exactly exactly Um, he is seated on the right hand of the father and will come to judge the living and the dead. See, I knew there would be somebody who could, who could could finish the creed for me. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it is in that light, I think, um, because of the explicitly kingly ruler and judging even, um, and bringing peace, right? Uh, bringing peace through his rule. Right. That the parallel is being made between Arthur and Jesus here. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) Craig says, curse my low church background. Yeah, Craig, uh, I will. uh, I hear that. I hear that. Uh, When I first started studying medieval language, I was you know, like a, an evangelical Protestant boy coming and reading all this Catholic stuff. And I found my own training to lead me so near and yet so far to what the medievals were talking about so often. Uh, it took me a long time, uh, to familiarize myself, uh, sufficiently with medieval Catholicism that I didn't make really embarrassing mistakes. And I still do. Um, But, um, yeah, good. Uh, David asks, was divine right monarchy a common idea in the 14th century? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a thing. Um, and that's definitely, uh, it's definitely around. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Okay, um, I promised, I don't have too much time, but I promised I would talk about, um, I would come back to the estates. Notice, and this is important, uh, in the greatest church of London, all the estates were long or day, that is, long before day. Uh, So, well before dawn, all of the estates are in the church to pray. Matins happens at, what, like 4 a.m. or something? 3 a.m. or something like that? Um, So, about my normal bedtime is when it's going to be Matins before too long. Um, Uh, all the estates were in the church for to pray the estates. That means everybody. Okay. So people are divided into three estates in medieval society. Um, People like to talk about class. Um, That's a modern word. That's like a Marxist word. People don't talk about class. Um, uh, It's true. People talk about like nobles and villains, right? Like nobles and peasants. Um, and you can be of noble family and noble blood. So it's not that class isn't a thing, but class isn't a medieval word. Um, the estates are primarily how they think of it. Um, High-born and low-born people. Again, Craig, that's a thing, right? You can be born of noble blood, or you could be born of 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 mean blood. Um, it's not that that isn't a thing, but that's not the primary way in which um, that's not the primary way in which people are divided. Right. That's not the primary category of society. Right. Um, the primary categories of society are the three estates. The oratores, the bellatores, and the laboratores. Those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. Right. Those are the three estates. Everybody falls into one of those three categories. Okay, everybody except one conspicuous group of people women. But let's not worry about women just now. Uh, All men fall into one of the three estates. The first estate are the clergy, the oratories, those who pray, right? Everyone who is in the church is in the first estate. Um, The second estate are the bellatories, those who fight. And those are the knights and dukes and kings, right? They are all Bellatories, they are in the second estate. Fighting is their jobs, it is their role, it is what they do. Okay, just as praying is the job of the clergy, fighting is the job of the knights and the nobles, and working is the job of the commons, right? Of everybody else, their job is to work. They raise the crops, uh, the the bellatories fight the battles. And the, uh, and the corks pray the prayers, right? Um, I know that this sounds unequal, right? Uh, every time I explained the three estates in front of an undergraduate classroom, a bunch of people, when I got to the laboratories, those who work, um a bunch of people would roll their eyes and be like, oh, right, of course, right? Those that get to do the work, and the others don't get to do the work. Um, No, no. I mean, I'm not saying there is not privilege attached to the first and second estates. Of course there is. Um, And they were very conscious of it, though they had a lot of fights among themselves as to which, in fact, was the boss, right? Uh, The first estate or the second estate. However... um, the way in the medieval mind, this is a division of labor. This is not, let's make the third estate do all the work while we sit and lounge around. No, the bellatoris don't sit and lounge around. Yes, they're wealthy. Yes, they live a comparatively comfortable life. But they have a role, right? And it's an important role. They are the Bellatories. So, um, the, um, uh, exactly, Tim. Prayer is work. Warfare is work. Um, guilds were an existence Lynn. Guilds were in existence. They were still laboratories. Right. If you're a merchant, you're still in the third estate. Um, there were therefore there were people in the third estate who were quite wealthy. You could be very wealthy and be in the third estate. Um, but uh, um, but yeah. So uh, some people have a concept of medieval warfare of like so you round up a bunch of your peasants and you like make them kill each other and then you like sit in the back like this is not how it worked. You're the bellatories. This is your job. Notice what the knights and dukes do, right? Um, We've already seen it. We we saw it in today's reading. They're at war, right? So they're at war, and the war is over. What do you do to celebrate the end of a war? What do you do? Throw a tournament, right? You, You... you, you, you have a joust, right? So you've just finished real combat. So you celebrate that by having having a feast in celebration at which you do mock combat. Why? Because you are a Bellatorist. This is your job. This is what you do, right? You celebrate the end of war by playing war games. Uh, and when you get together, like, this is literally, it's their only sport. This is their only pastime, is war and preparation for war. Um, and what we will see is... Uh, there are very rare occasions on which commons are killed in war in Maori. We will see this. Now, you might say maybe this is because they don't like nobody cares, right? Yes, uh, there are some of the men at arms that are called up by the barons and stuff. So it's it's the, it, they're not all knights. And yet many of them are knights. You'll remember that um, when Merlin raised the armies of King Ban and King Bors near the end of today's reading. And he raises 10,000 knights. There are 15,000 total soldiers that he raises, right? 10,000 uh, knights on horseback and 5,000 foot. Now the foot are almost certainly commons, right? Um, the liegemen of the, the barons under King Ban and King Bors who have, uh, 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 you know, uh, drawn their military levies and made up their armies. And what does Merlin do? Merlin sends them home right merlin sends them home and uh instead just takes the 10,000 horse right and it's the 10,000 horse that he brings across the sea to help um uh to help arthur um so yeah yeah this is um uh this is uh their identity right um This is why your skill in battle, your ability as a jouster matters, right? Because fighting is who you are and it's what you do. And the better you are at it, you know, the better you are. Like you're at the top of your game, right? Um, A farmer who's a really good farmer and raises awesome crops, that's, that's, he's good, right? That's how you would measure him. You would measure him by the skill of his work, a blacksmith who does excellent smithing work, right? You would That's how you would measure him, right? Because that's who he is. If you're a duke, it matters who you can defeat and who you can't defeat in the joust, right? If somebody else is a better swordsman than you, they're better than you, right? You might have more lands, but if he can mop the floor with you... You don't measure up, my friend, right? That And that matters kind of more socially in many ways, uh, as, as we will see, than the amount of lands that you have. Um, even potentially than your birth, though there's a strong correlation between noble birth and ability, right? Because it's part of the, like, divine uh, design, right, uh, of the Bellatoris. Okay. Anyway, um Oh, it's getting late. Okay. This is fine. We'll stop here. Um, we'll see how we're doing after next time. Uh, I, I'm not uh, making super... I'm falling farther and farther behind. Remember, I'm kind of guessing how quickly we're going to be able to go. We'll see what we do here for next time. Um, but uh, keep this in mind. Focus. Review Merlin's activities. I want to come back and try to do a little Merlin survey, right, after the—we're we're, going to—you're going to be reading through the end of this first section, right, uh, for next time. And I want to be kind of looking at the Merlin big picture for next time. What's going on with Merlin? What kind of patterns can we perceive in Merlin and, and what he does and how he acts, right? So let's let's look at that. And, of course, we'll get through the establishment of Arthur on the cr- on the throne here. Uh, so thanks for joining me today. This is a lot of fun. Uh, I look forward to, uh, continuing next time. We'll see how close we can get to the end of the first section, uh, next week. Um, thanks everybody. Uh, and I will see you around soon. Good night.